today in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 13 to 16. I get to preach a Bible verse that I have probably quoted as many, as much as any other in my preaching. Verse 13, we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. And this verse illustrates the work of the Word of God. G. Campbell Morgan was a British evangelist and preacher and prolific author. He lived from 1863 to 1945, and he grew up in a Christian home. And he never questioned the Bible was the Word of God. Never questioned it. But then he got to college, and his faith was extremely tested and severely challenged, and He began to have doubts. He said at one point, the whole intellectual world was under the mastery of the physical scientists and of a materialistic and rationalistic philosophy. Darwin and Huxley and Tyndall and Spencer and Bain. There came a moment when I was sure of nothing. In those days, opponents of the Bible would gather every Sunday and go into the great lecture halls and concert halls across England and attack Christianity and the Bible. Brilliant atheists and agnostics troubled young G. Campbell Morgan, and he read every book he could find for the Bible and against the Bible until he was so confused and so riddled with doubts that he couldn't go on. And so in desperation, he closed his books, went to a bookstore, and bought a Bible back to his room, and he opened it up, and he said, I am no longer sure that this is what my father claims it to be. If it be the word of God, it will bring assurance to my soul of itself. He later said, that Bible found me. I began to read and study it then, and I have been a student ever since illustrates the work of the word, the word of God at work in those who believe. The point I want you to get today is that the word of God is at work in all those who welcome it. The word of God is at work in those who welcome it. You must welcome the word of God into your life, like putting a welcome mat out. Now, These verses we're looking at today were set in the context of a wonderful welcome to the Word of God, but also a wicked rejection of the Word of God by many. Not unlike today. Paul, when he was on his first missionary trip, he was in South Turkey and was on then a second missionary trip. He went on a subsequent one and revisited the churches that he had planted and traveled to what was now, is now, northern Turkey. He was planning to do that, and before going north, he received a vision of a man saying, come over here and help us. Acts chapter 16, verse 9. And at that point, he followed God's leading and he went to Macedonia and Greece to preach the gospel. And history changed from that moment onward because the gospel went from Asia to Europe for the first time. On this second missionary journey, Paul separated from Barnabas and chose Silas. And he went and they picked up Timothy on the way and They came to Thessalonica for a relatively short time. 
but it was the most successful and the most resisted ministry they had had up to that point. Those appointed to salvation believed, while the rest remained hardened to the gospel. I've said at other times recently that 1 Thessalonians is a perfect antidote to the critical spirit that many Christians have adopted, and to the immaturity and to the pride and division generated by a lot of Christians that are intent on often pushing the Bible away. 1 Thessalonians shows how the beloved of God become beloved to one another, how they are part of a beloved church that is being changed by the gospel, and they're connected in relationships, and they're committed to ministry, ministry that pleases God, that is courageous about preaching the gospel, that has a motive to please God. And then, as Paul and his companions put so well, selfless service for others. This beautiful picture of a nursing mother tenderly caring for her children, and a father teaching his children. And this was modeled, this humble, bold maturity was modeled by Paul and Silas and Timothy. They lived godly lives. They gave godly help that pointed the people to Christ and to the word of God. God's word that is at work in those who welcome it. This passage that we're in today, 1 Thessalonians 2, 13 to 16, shows us five realities pertaining to the work of the word of God. If you're taking notes, here are the five. The work of the word is first, praiseworthy, second, personal, third, powerful, fourth, persecuted, and fifth, permanent. The work of the word of God is praiseworthy, it's reason to praise God, and it is personal. It is for you to be taken into your life. It is powerful. It does an amazing work that only God can do. It is persecuted because there are many opponents to the work of the word of God, and it is permanent. It is fixed. God's perfect word does a permanent work. First point is that the word of God and its work is praiseworthy. We'll start in verse 13 where it basically says, we, we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God that does its work in you who believe. We also thank God constantly for this. The reason they say also is because in chapter one, right at the beginning, they thanked God for the progress they had made in their faith. They're constantly now thanking God and that means, constant is a great word, it's uninterrupted, without ceasing. Like in, in chapter 5, verse 17, pray without ceasing. They're thanking God without intermission, incessantly, unceasingly, always. They thanked God for their progress, and now they're alluding to chapter 1, verses 5 through 10, where they had turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, to wait for his son from heaven, who saves us from the wrath to come. And basically, here's what they were doing. They were having a thanksgiving party all the time about God's work in the Thessalonians' hearts and lives. They were having a Thanksgiving party all the time for the reaction to the word that readily receives the word. Augustine, in a letter to his son in A.D. 412, said, In praise of God and the work of the word, such is the depth of the scriptures that even if I were attempting to study them and nothing else from early boyhood to decrepit old age, with the utmost leisure, the most unwearied zeal, and talents greater than I have, I would still daily be making progress in discovering their treasures. The word of God, as the psalmist said, is more to be desired than gold. 
than much fine gold. It's praiseworthy. You should have a, a Thanksgiving party as often as you can about the work of the word, not only in your life, but primarily in the lives of other believers that you know. This is what Paul and Silas and Timothy are pointing out. The work of the word is praiseworthy. We, we always thank God for this, this work of the word in your life, and it is also very personal. The second point is the work of the word is personal. Notice in verse 13 that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of man, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you, believers. He is describing the outward reception of their inner reaction to the word. They they received it outwardly, they reacted inwardly, and he uses two different verbs here, paralambana, which is received, and dekomai, which is accepted. Received means to accept from someone else, to receive something from someone else as a gift, and to accept means to welcome, putting the welcome mat out. Received means hearing with your ear, but accept means bringing it into your heart. They heard the word of God, they they took it into their hearts. They received it objectively, and then they received it wholeheartedly. They accepted it with the welcome mat out, In their life, they had a very high estimate of the word of God. There was a wholehearted welcome. They trusted and loved Jesus, and they trusted and loved his word. This was the word they had heard preached to them. The word of God from God. And Paul is bluntly stating something here. They're not accepting the word of man, but the word of God that is from God. It is God's word, and they rightly understood what they were hearing. And they rightly understood what they were receiving and accepting. They weren't worried, like, is this not true or not? Is this, is this going to change? Is this going to budge? Or is this going to be fixed and firm? And can I really believe it? Second, Second Peter chapter 1, we read these words. We have the prophetic word made more fully confirmed to which you would do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. This is why James said, put away all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness and receive the word implanted which is able to save your souls. And follows it up with, don't just be hearers of the word, be doers of the word. Don't deceive yourself. You're receiving the word, which is able to save your soul, so be a doer of that word. God has spoken the word. He has revealed himself in his word. He inspired the word. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. All scripture is inspired by God. That's the Greek word theopneustos, breathed into by God. God spoke his word. He inspired it, and he illumines it to believers. He helps you understand it. Let's say you're reading the Bible and you're like, I don't understand the Bible. I I feel like I'm just reading something that I can't get. It's interesting, we we understand so many other things we read, but the Bible is different. Well, let's say you're reading 2 Peter and you read 2 Peter chapter one and you're like, I don't understand it. My answer, read it again. You come back, I don't understand it. Okay, read it again. Read it again and again and again until you understand it, because if you're a Christian, the Holy Spirit will give you understanding into the word. Ask fellow believers, uh, consult some good books, 
but don't walk away from the word and say, well, I didn't understand it, therefore, I'm just going to walk away from it. The people respond to the word of God. God has spoken to us in his son. In Hebrews 1, it says that. He said, long ago, he spoke to us in the prophets in many portions in many ways. In, in these last days, he has spoken to us in his son. That's signifying the whole Old, New Testament. You've got the Old Testament and the New Testament. God has spoken. Paul was speaking with God, given authority, and his preaching wasn't his personal philosophy. It wasn't his opinions. It was the word that God gave him. It's personal. Spurgeon once said to a group of people, you know, there is dust enough on some of your Bibles to write damnation with your fingers. Someone else said, if all the neglected Bibles were dusted simultaneously, we would have a record dust storm, and the sun would go into eclipse for a whole week. Oswald Chambers said, if we understood what happens when we use the word of God, we would use it oftener. Other books were given for your information. The Bible was given for your transformation. It is personal. A.T. Pearson said, the Bible itself is the greatest miracle of all. By the way, if your Bible is falling apart, it probably means you aren't. Someone said, if you carry a Bible when you're young, it will carry you when you are old. Wilbur Smith, a voice from the past, said this, it will probably astonish many of you to know that one single normal issue of the Saturday Evening Post contains as much reading matter as the entire New Testament. Thousands of people read the Saturday Evening Post throughout every week in that day. The number of Christians who read the New Testament through every week, or even one whole book of the New Testament every week, are so few, we need not talk about it. And if you think of reading time, you know, the half the books of the Bible can be read in 10 to 45 minutes each. Many of them can be read in less than 20 minutes. You can read the entire Old Testament and New Testament slowly and with expression in less than 71 hours. Spurgeon spoke of a cupboard of neglect. He said, ah, you know more about your ledgers than your Bible. You know more about your day books than what God has written. Many of you will read a novel from beginning to end, and what have you got? A mouthful of froth when you have done. But you cannot read the Bible. That solid, lasting, substantial, and satisfying food goes uneaten locked up in the cupboard of neglect. It is personal. Do not neglect the word. Believers, don't neglect the word. You'll notice that I'm preaching from a new pulpit today. I need to tell you the story behind it. One of our elders, Jeff Lordson, passed away this year. And I'd asked him a while back if he would build us a new pulpit, and he had drawn up some designs, and there were some measurements and what have you, and then Jeff passed. And after his funeral, we were over at the house, and I was talking to his son-in-law, Tom Fessett, who uh, is a woodshop teacher at a, at a local school. And he said, let's build that together. Let's build that together one Saturday this fall. I said, let's go. Let's do it. He's the master, and I'll just help and hold tools. And we were trying to get a hold of each other recently, and I, I said, hey, when are we going to do that? And he goes, I kind of, sort of already did it for you. And I said, pictures? And he's like, not till I bring it. I wore him down, though. He sent me some pictures, brought tears to my eyes. I was like a kid before Christmas, couldn't wait to see it. I couldn't imagine something more beautiful. He, he designed this. Tom, he's right over here. Uh, he designed it. You've got to raise your hand. Just at least raise your hand. There you go. Thank you. Beautiful, a beautiful 
pulpit, and it's a creation of man, right? God gave us the wood and gave him the skill, and he put this together, and it's, it's beautiful. And I'm, I'm thrilled to preach at this pulpit. But there's a guy that I know. His name is um, Alex Montoya. And he says this with an accent, and I won't mimic his accent, though I could. He said, this is not a sacred desk. It's a place to put your Bible. This is a place to put my Bible when I preach, or whoever else comes up here and preaches. And this is just a place to put your Bible. I got a Bible with me here. It's a place to set my Bible on, but it's beautiful. And I don't want to put anyone else down, but I didn't want a round table with a little stool so that you thought I would give you a little talk. I wanted something where you would look at it and go, wow, I think there's going to be serious business coming out from behind that. And the Word of God does its work on believers personally. And I love the fact that I can stand at a creation of man as a mere mortal and have the eternal, perfect Word of God before me. And we can proclaim the excellencies of God seen in his beautiful word from this place. It's, it's personal. God touches your heart with his word. The work of the word is praiseworthy. It's personal. And point three, it's also powerful. It's powerful. We're still in verse 13. The word of God which does its work in you who believe. That word work is where we get our word energy from. It comes from two words meaning to work in. And it means to work effectively to cause something to happen, to operate, to, to do something. It's, it's the power to exercise power. And it is only used of superhuman power. It's used of God's power. And it says, the word of God which does its work in you who believe that the word is working energetically and effectively and efficiently. It, it puts forth energy. God, God the Spirit uses his word to change you. It's at work in you. It produces results. We've already seen in, in chapter 1, verse 5, that the word of God came in the Holy Spirit and in power and with full conviction. We, hear, we see in, in Hebrews 4.12 that the word of God is living and active. That word active is the same word here, at work. God's energy is at work through his word. It's not a dead word, it's a living word. This word describes active, efficient, effective working. Paul is saying that the word of God exerts effective, energetic power in believers. When Jesus prayed, sanctify them in the truth, thy word is truth. God incarnate knew what he was talking about. Go with me to Psalm 19. It's a beautiful passage. Psalm 19, we'll just look at verses 7 through 9. It's going to tell us that God's word is perfect and it endures forever. It's eternal and it's faithful and it's true and it's inspired and it's inerrant and it's blameless. And it's infallible. It's pure. It's righteous altogether. It's the authoritative word. Psalm 19, verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, 
rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the, rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. The word of God revives you. It gives you life. It, it saves you. James says, receive the word implanted which is able to save your souls. It makes you wise. It gives you wisdom. It sanctifies you. It rejoices your heart. It gives you joy. It blesses you. It lightens your eyes. It gives you understanding as God the Spirit illumines the word to you. It softens hard hearts. It convicts you. It hardens heart. It judges you. In this moment in time, as in every moment in time, since God gave his word, there are people that are being softened in their hearts by the Spirit of God, using the word of God to change them. And there are people that are being hardened more in their hearts towards God and his word because they are resisting the word. The word of God directs and strengthens and works in believers. In Isaiah 55, God says, My word which goes forth from my mouth will not return to me empty, without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the manner for which I sent it. 1 Corinthians 2.13, Paul says, the things we speak, the spiritual things we speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. The very words are from the Spirit of God. This is clearly claiming the divine verbal inspiration of the Bible. Hebrews 4.12, the word of God is living, continually living. It is active. It is doing a work. It is sharper than any double-edged sword. It pierces to as far as the division of joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of your heart. No wonder some people don't want the word of God because they don't want to face that sin that they're going to have to turn from. You who believe, it's, it's personal and it's powerful, and you who believe it, this indicates the condition upon which the word of God operates in human hearts. It operates in the hearts of those who believe. There must not only be the hearing of the word, but also a continuing belief. A genuine faith is continuing faith. As James says, faith without works is dead. One person put it this way, can it ebb and flow? Can, can your faith, can your belief ebb and flow? Sure, but it continues to believe even when at low tide. Where there's been a personal surrender in your heart to Jesus Christ, who is the way, the truth, and the life. John 1.12, as many as received him, to them he, became, he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. And if you personally surrender to Christ, then there will be conduct consistent with that surrender. As you love Jesus, you love his word. Peter said, you've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. And this is the word that was preached to you. This was the good news, the gospel that was preached to you. Paul, when he was speaking to the Ephesian elders in Acts 20, he said, I commend you. That's a banking term, meaning I put you in a deposit box. I'm putting you in a deposit to God and the word of his grace, I'm commending you to God and his word, which is able, it has the inherent ability and power in itself by virtue of being from God to build you up and give you the inheritance among all those who are being sanctified. 
This is what the word of God does. And the Thessalonians powerfully knew, personally knew, the powerful word of God at work in them. The effect upon their lives had been widely known. It had become known. They had turned to God from idols. They, They were serving the living God. And people had heard about it. People knew of their lives. I hope that there's someone in my life and in your life who says, this person is being changed by the word of God. God's at work in their heart. God's at work in their life. Such a transforming experience would convince you that what you have accepted and welcomed is truly the word of God because no human message can produce such results. Power of the word. One time, Spurgeon was going to speak in an auditorium He didn't use a microphone, so he would go early and check out the acoustics in the room. And he stepped up to the pulpit, and he loudly proclaimed, Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. And he was satisfied with the acoustics, and so he left and went his way. But unknown to him, there were two men working in the rafters of that large auditorium. Neither one were Christians, and one of the men took that verse into his heart. It convicted him, and he became a believer the very next day. Such is the penetrating power of the word of God upon the human heart. Little wonder that we are commanded to preach the word. When you preach the word, God captures people by his word. Clement of Alexandria wrote this, as fishes fall into a net, so is one captured by the word of God. Where there's no resistance on your part, you're putting out the welcome mat, you're you're loving what God has given you, and If you are resisting the word of God, there's something wrong with your heart. If you're always finding yourself pushing against the bare word of God, pride is probably at work. Word of God performs its work powerfully. Robert Thomas said this, Once received, this word of God becomes an active power operating continually in the believer's life. When it is at work in those who believe, there is a change in behavior and constant fruitfulness. The word of God restores. The word of God revives. The word of God gives life. There was a young man who left home to attend college. His mother was very worried about him, and so she gave him a Bible. And in front of that Bible, she wrote a Bible verse in the Bible. And the young man soon discovered that college life was a, a, an you know, ongoing parade of parties, and he spent all his money on fleeting pleasures. And at one point, he needed some money for whiskey, and so he sold his Bible to get it. He pawned his Bible. He made it through college. He became a doctor at a a large hospital. One day he was treating a dying patient who knew that he was dying, and he asked for his book. They brought the man his book. After the man passed away, the doctor noticed the man's book was the Bible that his mother had given him when he went away to college. Couldn't believe it. His name and the verse of Scripture was still inside the front cover. He went to his office and began reading that book. Several hours later, he surrendered his life to Jesus Christ. Dr. W.P. Mackey, he later became a pastor and a writer of the old gospel hymn, Revive Us Again. The word is powerful. It brings to life. And it changes hearts. Dennis Prager was once debating an Oxford atheist philosopher, Jonathan Glover. And Prager raised this question to him. If you, Professor Glover, were stranded at about midnight in a desolate Los Angeles street, and if, as you step out of your car with fear and trembling, 
You were suddenly to hear the weight of pounding footsteps behind you, and you saw ten burly young men who had just stepped out of a dwelling coming toward you. Would it or would it not make a difference to you to know that they were coming from a Bible study? When you immerse yourself in the Word of God, something extraordinary happens. Something extraordinary happens. It's powerful. And God wants you to recognize the work that he is doing by his word in the lives of your Christian brothers and sisters, just as Paul and Silas and Timothy did. The word of the work, the work of the word. It's praiseworthy, it's personal, and it is powerful. Point number four, the work of the word is persecuted. Just as many people who love it hate it. Look at verse 14. Those who welcome the word endure suffering. For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. He's pointing to Judea. Jewish Christians that were being persecuted by the Jews. And he said, you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews. Many of the believers in Thessalonica were Gentiles, and they were getting a lot of heat from the Gentiles. And the Jews were chasing Paul and Silas and Timothy down and making trouble there as well. But he says, you became imitators. They welcomed the word and they were able to endure suffering because suffering and, and welcoming the word often go together. The churches of God have become faithful in enduring the persecution that comes from believing the gospel and there was a common experience of suffering. If you welcome the word of God, it will often be accompanied by suffering, by adversity. The very thing that helps you not fall in adversity, the word of God, will often bring about the adversity in your life. They had suffered persecution. In fact, the people that were persecuting them, verse 15, killed the Lord Jesus. He says, they, they killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind. And it's interesting that killing Jesus was listed first. The greatest crime was against the Lord Jesus, especially their part in his death. So it's listed first among the offenses. Persuaded by the Jewish leaders, the Romans had crucified Jesus. They killed the exalted Lord of glory, the worst crime ever perpetuated. And then they hindered believers from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. How often has this happened in our in our time now, in every time that the word of God has been present, where people don't want to hear the word of God. Maybe in your home, maybe on your block, maybe in your school, maybe in your office. Verses 15 and 16 are a bit of a shocker, by the way. Biting criticism. In Romans 9 and 10, Paul had said, I want to see the salvation of my loved ones, just like you and I want to see the salvation of our loved ones. And no matter how much he had suffered at the hands of the Jews, he wanted them to be saved by believing the gospel and trusting Christ. But here he tells it like it is. He says, this is the way it is. The Spirit of God is having him point it out that unbelievers had made some horrendous choices and Paul had endured many hostile acts. Paul could speak of it. He was chased out of Damascus. He was chased out of Jerusalem by his own people not long after conversion. The message was rejected and driven out of the city of Antioch. At Iconium, the Jews poisoned the minds of the people against Paul and Barnabas, forced them out of town. Followed them to Lystra and stoned Paul and left him for dead. The Jewish opposition continued to hound them all the way to Thessalonica, chasing Paul out of town. 
So it makes sense that Paul would say, from Corinth, where there was a united attack against him there by the Jews, that you've gone through it and you are going through it. If you look in chapter 3, he will explain that this is what you signed up for, folks. You were destined for this persecution. The Thessalonians were being attacked. Persistent opposition. They killed the Lord Jesus. They killed the prophets. Many of the Old Testament prophets died at the hands of their own people because of their opposition to the word of God. Jeremiah got this. As for the message that you have spoken to us in the name of the Lord, we're not going to listen to you. We're not doing it. They displeased God. They're hostile to all people. They were militantly opposed. They objected so strenuously to the word of God, they became God's enemies. And they tried to keep Christians from speaking to non-Christians. They hindered the gospel. They didn't want to hear about Jesus' messiahship. They didn't want to hear about Jesus' saving work. They had opposed Jesus to his face. And now, they're opposing his followers. Contrast couldn't be clearer between believers and unbelievers. Those who killed and drove out and displeased and are hostile and forbid speaking the gospel, their sins are heaped up and wrath is reserved. As opposed to those who have been given life and welcome the word and please God and are friends with God, they proclaim the gospel and have forgiveness in Christ and they're rescued from wrath. The word of God will be persecuted and it will be the only book left standing. Alexander Duff was the first foreign missionary of the Church of Scotland, and he got off to a bit of a rough start. He was only 23, and he brought his wife uh, on the way to India, and twice they were shipwrecked. This was in 1829. And the most serious wreck occurred when his ship, the Lady Holland, was within a few miles of India. It was late at night, and the ship struck a reef, and only a small portion of the ship uh, lasted, and it was stuck to this reef, so any survivors just jammed on to the one part that was hanging on to the reef. And back in those days, you know, they brought everything with them when they were going on a trip like this. He had 800 books with him. They were all lost except one. And it turned out to be his Bible. He saw a package bobbing on the, on the, uh, on the water, and, and they grabbed it, and it was his Bible. And he opened that Bible up and started preaching it, started teaching it, and a church was birthed. And... The word did the work. See, the word of God will be the only book left standing. It will be the only one that has survived. It has weathered more than a storm at sea, and all of man's attempts to eradicate it or push it out of the way will never succeed. Never. God will confound the plans of sinful man. Like Martin Luther said before the Diet of Worms, my conscience is captive to the word of God. I will not recant anything, for to go against conscience is neither safe nor honest. Here I stand, I can do no other. God help me, amen. Someone once said, let your conscience be your guide is only valid if God's word is guiding your conscience. It's going to be persecuted. And you along with it, when you put the welcome mat out for the word of God, and don't hide it, and don't cave in. You can't cave in. The work of the word is praiseworthy. It is personal, it is powerful, it is persecuted. And fifth, the word of the word is permanent. It's permanent, it's fixed. It's not going to change, it's not going to go away, it's not going to somehow cave in one day. 
Look at verse 16, the very end. It says, so as always to fill up the measure of their sins, but wrath has come upon them at last. Interesting, it says that they have filled up the measure of their sins. Full to the brim. This is the same word used in John 13, 1 of Jesus' irrevocable love for his own. He loved them fully, loved them to the uttermost, loved them to the full extent. Here, they fill up the measure of their sins. Their sins have come to the full extent. So wrath has come upon them, God's wrath. They've piled up their sins to the maximum limit that filled up the cup of wrath. But why does Paul say, you know, this has come upon them as if it's already happened? Some people think this was spoken historically of the Babylonian exile. Some people think this was spoken prophetically of Jerusalem's destruction in AD 70, soon to come in that day. Some think it was about Christ's second coming in judgment. What this is pointing to is God's promised eternal wrath for unbelievers that is so certain that it is spoken of as having come already. It's like Romans 8 where it says that those he justified he also glorified and we're not fully glorified, but it's spoken of as good as done. So this is not referring to a present outpouring of wrath like Romans 1.18. This is a definite future wrath. The wrath of God. The end times wrath for which the whole world is destined except for believers. The wrath is determined and it will be carried out. The wrath has been determined by God as recorded in his word. The punishment will come. This is like, wait till your father gets home. Actually, it's, it's worse. It's go to the principal's office and wait till he gets back. Their sins were heaped up, filled to the full, overflowing. There was a well-defined limit of sin that God had set. And when the point was reached, God's wrath becomes inevitable. There were generations of repeated apostasies and rebellion on the part of Israel. It arrived at the inflection point. Their biggest opponent at that moment was God himself because they opposed him. God had set the conditions. Through Christ's first coming and the rejection of the Messiah by his people, now they would experience trouble like they never knew. And they had put the trouble upon believers. Now the troubles would come upon them. At last, more accurately means fully. It will come upon them fully. The issue is settled. God's determination cannot be reversed. The blindness of many gives proof that they're under his wrath. But what do we do? We keep preaching the gospel to everyone because we don't know who is who. We keep preaching the gospel because we do not know who is who. We give the gospel to all. We love all people with the love of God and we pray for their salvation. Only God knows those who he's going to save. That's why we share the good news with everyone we can. The only way anyone is ever going to be saved is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone, and it's recorded in Scripture alone, and Scripture is permanent, and the work of the Word lasts. God chooses. God gives life. People respond to the gospel message, and then what does he do? He sends everyone he saves out to give the gospel message. This is what Scripture teaches us. Those saved by grace, go give the gospel of grace. And God, by grace, is pleased to save some. In Isaiah 40, we read these words. The glory of the Lord shall be revealed. All flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass. All its beauty is like the flower of the field. 
The grass withers. The flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers. The flower fades. But the word of our God will stand forever. It's permanent. When God speaks of his word, sometimes he calls it his word. Sometimes he calls it his breath. Sometimes he calls it his, his voice. 1 Peter 2.24 quotes this. All flesh is like grass, all its glory like the flower of the grass. The grass withers, the flower falls off, but the word of our Lord remains forever. Right after Isaiah 40, verses 5 through 8, you have Isaiah 40, verse 9. Go up on a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not, say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Behold your God who comes with blessing and judgment. This is fixed. God knows what he will do. The work of the word is permanent. Never forget, God is a God of just wrath. Jonathan Edwards, in his sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, cried this, O sinner, consider the fearful danger you are in. It is a great furnace of wrath, a wide and bottomless pit full of the fire of wrath that you are held over in the hand of that God whose wrath is provoked and incensed as much against you as against many of the damned in hell. You hang by a slender thread with the flames of divine wrath flashing about it and ready every moment to singe it and burn it asunder and you have no interest in any mediator and nothing to lay hold of to save yourself, nothing to keep off the flames of wrath, nothing of your own, nothing that you have ever done, nothing that you can do to induce God to spare you one moment. The work of the word of God is permanent, and you can be, if you're a believer, confident. That God saves and sanctifies by his word, and you can welcome the word and endure persecution. What effect does the word of God have upon your heart and life? If it doesn't have its full effect, maybe you're not putting out the welcome mat for it. What place does the word of God have in your life? Is it for you like some think of it as a condiment, ketchup or mustard that you put on a hot dog, you know, not the main thing, but something helpful, a, a topping. Some people see the Bible as, you know, like, like sprinkles on top of, of ice cream or whipped cream or some, you know, sauce you put on extra. You just add it to your life, get you ahead a little bit. Some people see it as a nice addition like, a, like to your furnishings in your house, like a chair. Important but not essential. Or is it the foundation bedrock of your entire existence? That's what God wants it to be in your life. Some people will say, some Christians will say, I need to get a biblical worldview. You already got one. You have a Bible. You get that Bible into you, you will live your biblical worldview. It'll change you from the inside out. What, that's what it means to have a, a biblical worldview. You don't tack on the Bible like an add-on or like a condiment or some additive, it's the main course. It's like you say, this is where you can find me now with my nose in my Bible and loving people 
with the love of Christ and serving his purposes however I can. But the welcome mat is always open for the, for the word of God in my life. And it's not just a welcome guest. It's the driver. And I'm yielding to God and his word, which does its work in me who believe. It's praiseworthy work. It's personal work. It's powerful work. It's, it's persecuted work, and it is permanent The word of God is at work in those who welcome it. As Joshua heard these words, this book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate upon it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it, for then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have good success. That means you will act wisely. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened. Do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Lord, thank you that your word is at work in those who welcome it. I pray, Lord, that we would be those who welcome it gladly. Let it sink deep into our hearts and souls and let it drive every aspect of our life. That you would be glorified, that you would be honored, that you would be pleased, that people would be reached with the gospel, that we would live for the praise of your glory. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.